0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Concessions. This week, we're bringing on a new guest, Connor Brown, to discuss one of his favorite classic Westerns, Django. Using Django as a sort of North Star, Jared, Connor, and I dig into the hows and the whys of spaghetti Westerns, which is pretty uncharted territory for both of the Concessions boys. So having Connor on to bring some background was really helpful. We also do some comparing to Spaghetti's American counterpart, which was particularly useful for me as someone who's still trying to see the light on the joys of Westerns. If you enjoyed rummaging through the mud with us, please feel free to drop a like, subscribe, or any form of approval via whatever method you may be using to listen to this episode. Also, you can find Jared on Threads at Jared Concessions and myself on X at Dan Concedes, where you can show off your impressive coffin of mass destruction to us. As always, thank you so much for checking out this chat, and let's go hang out with Franco Nero in
1: 1966's Project. Django. Django.
0: Partner. welcome to Concessions. I'm Dan
2: and I'm Jared. And the coffin business is a booming.
0: It, it's never boomed more than in 1966, Django. Look at that. That's probably the quickest I've ever gotten out. The title of the film in yeah. one of our episodes.
2: Yeah, yeah. We usually like to conceal it from the person who's just clicked the name or you know, <laughs> pressed the name on their phone for a nice long while, 10, 15 minutes sometimes. Leave, yeah, leave them wondering.
0: Maybe one time we need to just mislabel an episode and just do it completely different. Actually, give them a little switcheroo. There's got to be a good movie where you could do that. Some so like of- a Night
2: Shyamalan movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twist. But speaking of concealment, we have been concealing a third member is in the room right now, a, uh, a very, very special guest, that of Connor Brown. Say hello to our vast and wide audience.
1: yippee ki what's up, boys?
0: Hello, welcome, and a little history on old Connor. He's a brother of friend of the show, Jackson Brown. So I'd met Jackson at a bar years ago, uh, working together, and then... Connor, I met you, what, like 2019 or something like that? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think sometime around 2019, 2018, somewhere a little bit pre-pandemic.
0: Give or take Uh, after you were at the the sweet, sweet university at Chattanooga. Or Mm -hmm. UT Chattanooga, sorry, sorry.
1: No, it's so important to get that technical terminology correct.
0: (laughs) Um, So he, you know, like the whole circle of friends that's out there, we spend way too much time jerking each other off about how much we like movies and how much we know about it. Mm Uh, so he was a natural Ooh, the, pick. the Dutch yeah.
2: rudder of movies is happening right here. We can do like oh. a three-way <laughs> Dutch rudder. <tonight. laughs> it's Alas, you know, it's, we are it's in three different century. states.
1: Oof, <laughs> devastating. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, but yeah it, no, we've had we've had Connor's brother Jackson on the show a couple times. We'll have him on more. Uh, we're putting together our own Iron Claw. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he act, there actually is another brother that we can bring in. Let's hope they don't...
1: uh, uh yeah, we'll bring in the same page.
0: No, this will be the happier version. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Where they become heavyweight
0: podcasting champions
1: of the world. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. yeah, exactly. Podcasting powerhouse. I think there's already <laughs> three very famous podcasting brothers. You know, well, there's room them. for another
0: one. And, well, you got to challenge them. Yeah, take them on. Mm.
1: Take the throne. I'll really... Hang in the square name.
0: circle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll start with you, Connor, as, uh, as we are wont to do. What are you... Uh, what beverage are you enjoying here?
1: So normally I would say it's more fitting to be drinking uh, whiskey or something like maybe something real rock gut. Um, <laughs> but then I got snowed in this week and promptly drank all my whiskey. So now I've got a $10 Cabernet Sauvignon because I am a fancy boy.
0: Well, that's actually especially well for a snow Western. That's very appropriate. Mm. You got snowed in the first thing has gone so all the whiskey.
1: Yeah, true, true. I'm dedicated, and method, certainly.
2: (laughs) What about you, Jared? Yeah, well, I am just getting over RSV, like my children love to do. They brought home the plague, and this time I've also succumbed. And so I've got cough syrup and water. (laughs) You're drinking lean? (laughs) This this is, yeah, 0% right here. But Dan... (laughs) Do you know what I wish I were drinking? What, what do you wish you could... What could possibly be better mm-hmm. than an ice-cold cup of lean? <laughs> I'm, pret- I'm pretending this here. H2O is a cold, crisp, mm. rejuvenating, Ooh. watermelon, white claw Oh, the my. nectar of the gods. Oh, summer, the gods should be so lucky. If, if I use my imagination, if I close my eyes, I can just about <laughs> taste it. That's how memorable the flavor is of watermelon white claw.
1: <laughs> sponsor please
2: sponsor us,
0: please, please. Rent's expensive oh, yeah. out here.
2: We're just trying to put that out into the world as much as we can. Manifest. I know someone will eventually listen to this that can give us that connection into White Claw. <laughs> but until that happens, Dan, what about you? What are you sipping on over there? Uh, I got a nice old local brew. The uh, I, I figure you probably heard of this, but Swami's India Pale Ale from Pizza Port. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's pizza Port, like we've said on the show many times before, uh, better beer than pizza.
0: Yes, and it, uh, it hurts a lot of feelings down here in California. Ooh. but. The beer is actually quite good. I, I really like there, and they're they have the nice uh, added bonus of they sell these once again as always the visual medium of podcasting. Mm-hmm. This is a sixteen ounce glass, so or a cup, so a big boy. Uh, they sell them by the six pack, which you don't see too much of that. anymore. No, usually
1: they're in fours. What's the ABV on that bad boy?
0: Uh, duh, 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 duh. I think it's like six six point
1: eight. Yeah, that's not bad.
0: So six a six pack of six point eight tall boys.
1: I'll get you there.
0: Economy. Uh, But speaking of economy, the the economy of the mind, the mindscape, what have we uh, invested in artistically in this last week? Connor, any uh, movies, books, video games, experiences, anything you want to shout out?
1: Yeah. um, So there's a few by nature of being snowed in that was I've consumed a lot. But the big one um, this week has got to be uh, Apple TV, Slow Horses. Slow people horse. been telling me to watch it for, ever since it came out, they're now in the third season. Fucking phenomenal. It's like pulpish uh John Le Car, just incompetent spycraft shit. Um, <laughs> all your favorite British character actors are there just batting a thousand. I mean, it's phenomenal. I binged a season in a day the past two days. <laughs> like, truly yeah, blown away bad. by how engaging it is. I, I knew nothing about going in apart from people just being like, Oh, you think you know film and TV and you don't watch this? Like Gary oldman's there, I'm like, all right, whatever. But, <laughs> truly fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Have you cool. heard of
2: this, Jared? No. And now that I've been insulted in that way, I guess I have to watch it. <laughs> we also know <laughs> that it pairs to... well with whiskey. So there's that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's got at least two alcoholic spies.
0: See, that's the problem. I don't know about you guys. Whenever I see an alcoholic, like a, a show about an alcoholic and they're like drinking and spiraling down, I always think like,
1: that Damn, a drink awesome.
0: looks good, actually. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yep, yep. Like I watch something like BoJack Horseman and I want a glass of whiskey every single time. Yep. <laughs> what about you, Jared?
2: Yeah, oh, I've been I've been reading and reading and reading and reading and also like getting some uh, nerd. some some, <laughs> some manga in there too. I've been Ooh, nerd some, <laughs> some Junji Ito short oh, horror yeah. stories, uh, which there seems to be an endless supply of. But the thing that I wanted to point out to specifically that really sticks out in my mind is the the season premiere of true detective that aired this week mm. fucking great connor's like fish pumping right now it's exceptional, exceptional. <laughs> i was worried about I, I actually didn't i wasn't super like pumped about watching it or anything like season two is a trash fire season three mm-hmm. right at the ship pretty well uh but still not super phenomenal or anything but Man, this first season or first episode of season four, Night Country fucking kicks ass. And what's gotten me extra excited about it is the entire season was written and directed by one lady um, by the name of Issa Lopez, who is the mind behind this movie I saw at SIF like six, seven years ago called Tigers Are Not Afraid a Mexican filmmaker who's now working with Guillermo del Toro on something. She's working with Noah Hawley from Fargo and Legion on something else. She wrote and directed this entire six episode season of True Detective, which in, she definitely like had some co-writers on a few of the episodes, but like for anyone who doesn't like know the ins and outs of television, typically there's like a central writer called the showrunner who's running the writer's room and, you know, multiple people will work on one episode or maybe they'll split it up and like one person will write each episode, that sort of thing. But it's becoming a little bit more common now for there to just be an auteur that writes and directs an entire season or an entire series of television. Hmm. And whenever I see that, I get really excited. And then in this case, just being that she wrote and directed Tigers Are Not Afraid, which is this really, really kick ass crime drama sort of magical realism type of horror film um think of uh the devil's backbone mixed with city of god and you've got tigers are not afraid and it fucking kicks ass and she's also responsible for this new season of true detective and if that uh first episode is anything to go by she hasn't lost her step in those uh you know five six years since tigers are not afraid now correct me if i'm wrong i can watch the fourth season without anything else right
0: they're all self-contained Correct. Yes. Yeah. I might do it just to join in have the, you uh, not whole... watched the
2: first season of True no, Detective? Not, okay, not then obviously. you do not you will not watch yeah. the fourth season. You will watch <laughs> the first
1: season. No. No, that was like, it, I just it, re-watched. no, I just rewatched the first season for the fifth time. Yeah, it doesn't matter
2: there. how good the fourth season is, it's not gonna touch the first season. No. It, well then I almost be... want to watch the fourth season so it's not a come down. It oh yeah. Well it, as long as you're not hmm. like get in the headspace hmm. that it is an anthology and try not yeah. to compare them but man it's difficult true. and that that first season's just lightning in a bottle it's it might be the best season of television ever it's definitely one of them mm. but that, that's that's not to take away from from what isa lopez is doing no. in his current season it's kicking ass but man there's nothing like the first season of true detective
1: yeah truly
2: yeah i just know a bunch of memes of matthew mcconaughey looking all
0: sleazy and sludgy
2: <laughs> plenty of that for sure <laughs> what, what about what about you Dan what was like you know one or two of the the best things that you took in this week Um so book wise I think I've been talking to you both
0: separately about this where a, it was a great audiobook listening where lately I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks that are like travel logs or bios or memoirs or things like that and John Steinbeck had one where he basically travels across the country with his dog and he's like he's probably in his late 50s and he's been living in long island for a while so he's going back into like the nowhere parts of the country for the most part and noting how it's changed in the last like 30-ish years when he was a young man going through all of it it's a fun mix of like you know price of progress and he's being a bit of a curmudgeon and also like actual like pointed critiques and observations and at the same time like he's aware that like you know, as you get older, you stop being the, the center of culture and, you know, things are not made for you anymore. And he's kind of noticing that gap. And also he's got a dog. So he gets hang out with the dog the whole time. That's fun. Hmm.
2: Oh, that so, sounds so, wonderful, man. Yeah, John
0: Steinbeck yes, can write yes. a little bit. But uh, movies-wise, <laughs> I guess sort of related about people out in the great wide open pastures. The Eight Mountains. I watched that the other day. And mm-hmm. that is some of the best shit I've seen a long time. Or actually, it was at Sif, and I think we just couldn't fit it into the schedule. and that's why I, did, I think I'd seen the preview for it like you know fifteen times during sif. and it looked interesting enough where I'm like, okay, like you know, the cinematography looks great. I like big mountains and guys being dudes and being friends and the power of friendship. All right, I'm in. Um, and it hit criterion not too long ago, so I finally got around to it and yeah it's like it's one of the better like if i had seen it before the year's end i probably would have put it top five of, oh, like wow what i had seen that come out that year and it comes like the title i guess is basically the central conceit where it's like it's this uh oh Nep- nepalese nepalese nepal if you're from nepal what are no ne- <laughs> neapolitan uh <laughs> a a a like a myth or like a riddle where it's like there's Eight mountains and in the middle, there's the tallest mountain, and there's two. And the question is, is it are you more complete or wise for having seen all eight of the mountains or taking the time to travel through the one mountain to the very, very top? Where there's only time to do one of the two of them. And one character is clearly the guy who, like stayed in one place and got to the top of that one mountain, and the other guy's more of like a nomadic type, and he mm. goes to the other or the quote unquote eight other mountains, and you see like their life and their friendship intersecting with
2: one another and how like those experiences change each other wow. Very good. that's like me and my brother he he always mm-hmm. wants to just get right to the end of super mario and i always want to get all the coins
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you could do an adaptation of
0: the eight mountains with uh you guys playing mario oh i love it mm-hmm. i love it <laughs> But that's enough about, you know, the silly things that we've put into our hearts and minds and bodies in the last <laughs> week or so. Um, we're here to talk about a 1966 classic by the name of Django with a D. The D is silent. It is directed by Sergio Corbucci. It is uh, assistant or the assistant director was Ruggero Diodato. I'm going to be saying this all with my worst Italian accent. <laughs> Think uh, Aldo Rain style. Yeah, Jared, do you have any like comments about like you put that in to add him in as the assistant director? Which usually we don't throw them in. Do you? uh, Yeah,
2: yeah I guess it would be pretty rare for an assistant director on a movie to be like such a major figure in cinema himself but uh, Ruggiero Diodato is the guy that most famously wrote and directed Cannibal Holocaust
1: Oh, Oh. And
2: uh, he is responsible for shooting a lot of the violence in Django Oh. um and so like you really do get this sort of lineage of exploitation that starts with django and continues like with Deodato's cannibal movies and there's that sort of lineage that is still you still see some shades of today but i thought it was important to point out because he is a pretty major figure for like you know hardcore horror hounds like me yeah and, uh, I, think it, I think it's clear just like the way that some of the some of the violence is shot that uh yeah, there was someone behind behind the lens who like was very uh very eager to 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 get it in camera, <laughs> very into it.
0: That's yeah,
1: fascinating. I did not know that.
0: And then we'll, we'll get into more details about this. This was uh, obviously an Italian production, but also an Italian slash Spanish production, uh, co-production between the two different countries. Uh, the composer is uh, Luis Bakalov. Bakalov, probably Bak- Bak- Bakalov. 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 Balaklava. I'm not sure. <laughs> um,
1: oh
2: man that's two that's two we what
1: <laughs> how many do we get
2: yeah <laughs> I'm fucked up dan, dan, dan gets dan gets three uh tasteless jokes about mispronouncing <laughs> foreign names per episode okay, I'll to save the last one for for a good
0: one well we got the, the i'm gonna have to get through the the name of the stars so let's see how well i do this one well franco nero i can do that one jose bodalo lauren donna nusiak Angel Alvarez or Angel Alvarez, uh, Eduardo. Oh, this, this
2: this last one is the one that's going to get you, <laughs> Eduardo <No>. Fajardo. <laughs> F- is it Fajardo? Fajardo. Fajardo? Eduardo. Uh, no, Fajardo? I don't know. I just thought it was funny that it I'm reminds...
1: Not wading into these waters with. Oh me.
0: man, wait! That that reminds me. Uh, the first time I ever went to a a good Italian restaurant called uh, Olive Garden when I was like nine, <laughs> I wanted the soup style breadsticks and. One of the options was Fajoule and it sounded good. So I wanted I, I read it. I looked up the waiter and I asked for the fagioli. Ooh. And I was uh oh boy.
2: Yeah, right. I was I was chastised for that
1: one. Well no, you're canceled. No, we caught that in recording. You're canceled now.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. I already tweeted that. <laughs> now, now that now that I think about it, I think there's a real, real possibility that Olive Garden is American revenge for the spaghetti western. <laughs> <laughs> just uh just just draining them dry of all of italy's soups, salad and breadsticks by giving it to all americans yeah than- no like you, you'll take you'll take something precious to us about our culture and you'll just bastardize it in cinematic form well we can do that to your food like we're gonna hit those italians where it hurts <laughs> right in the pizza <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh
0: so those are my best attempts at getting the names out there. Uh, but yeah, Connor, starts off with like your previous relationship with this film, Spaghetti Westerns, Western Broadly, and answer the the time honor question of, we told you you could talk about anything on a podcast for about two hours, hour and a half, <laughs> and you forced us to do this one. So why?
1: Yeah, so as um, for a little bit of background, I grew up on Westerns. Um, my granddad had... A farm raise cattle and stuff and so big john wayne guy um and as the leone dollars trilogy was something i visited more as i got older and saw all these other kind of more cult things um and then i guess whatever year it is that django and chain comes out that raised a lot of questions for me about different gaps in the western filmmaking history and That, along with kind of my rise of being able to access things, I was in college then and had the library that nobody was taking advantage of, the ability to rent all these criterion things. So you start falling down these different rabbit holes of foreign filmmaking. Uh, You finally have access to different things. And even still, you can only get so far. But then comes Tubi, and we now have access to every foreign exploitation cult movie from... The 60s to now and that's like a haven of things so i think probably back early pandemic i watched um django for the first time and i'd seen the dollars trilogy um both are essentially knockoffs or not essentially kurosawa fucking sued leone over i saw that and one if it was yeah um but i mean they're just remakes of yojimbo but i think the idea of taking a story that just basic but with such heavy archetypes and kind of turning into something different and the way they each go in many ways very different ways um django is a much more violent anti-authoritarian um just gruesome sort of movie and to me there are two kind of paths in spaghetti and you get I guess kind of the renowned respected way which is leone he's bringing in all this technical skill he essentially finds he doesn't start the genre but in america he pretty much does because that's who broke in um but so you get that way but then you get corbucci who was definitely a more rebellious he's got a lot more political themes and his other movies not so much this one and so you get two very different ways the genre goes and influences further genres of film and I think a lot of people talk about dollars and once upon a time in the West and what all that influenced. But I don't think people talk enough about kind of this film's impact in the cult sphere and the different intense genre things that come from that. Um, and I mean I even learned stuff I didn't know when I was actually researching for this pod. So I think there's so much with the history of spaghetti that no one really knows about or talks about now but has such fingerprints all over so much work now that it feels too big to overlook um and also people shooting people with revolvers is fucking cool um and that's a a huge part i like cowboy hats i like people with ponchos and shit it's fun it's you get all this different political themes and different stuff but also at the end of the day, it's just fucking cool to watch Django kill people with a gatling gun you know
2: out of yeah, a coffin that he True. carries around with him everywhere he goes
0: <laughs> well and that's what like you were you are kind of alluding to that, and that that's why i love when i run into a movie like this where it's like you see a movie it's like oh now like 60 other films i've seen now suddenly make sense i've like mm-hmm. found its original dna
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: uh, Jared what about you because uh, you're also well this is an interesting one that usually with a guest It's like a film at least one of us knows about or we're like familiar with the movement or the director or something Or we have some grounding, but I think for both of us when you put in Django. We were both like uh, <laughs> This is not our wheelhouse. This is not our area of expertise uh,
2: So Jared, were you the same as me in that uh, that regard? Yeah, I mean I would say in the extreme so I would never seen Django I had this vague knowledge in my brain somewhere that there had been this like vast array of unofficial sequels to it over the decades and of course i saw django unchained and s- similarly to connor that kind of struck my interest in wanting to know more about those vast array of unofficial sequels and then actually before even before that i had seen sukiyaki western django by takashi Mike. And actually had no idea that it was connected to like, you or know, oh, really? the dollars trilogy in this movie. <laughs> like, I, like I didn't even like get, like I didn't second guess that the word Django in the title, but I, unlike Connor, I, I never went and explored it at all. In fact, I don't think, I think this past week was the first time I'd seen any spaghetti Westerns from, from start to finish. Like I certainly seen a lot of bits and pieces of the dollars trilogy and I like, I I enjoy Westerns in general, even though I don't usually seek them out. Like I really love the modern remakes of True Grit and 310 to Yuma. Oh, yeah. I've played the shit out of both Red Dead Redemption games that are just like shocked oh, yeah. to the brim full of references to, to this movie. Um, I love Cormac McCarthy's books. Like Blood Meridian is one of my favorite books I've read in the last five years or so. Uh, and then I really, really closely studied High Noon in school. Hmm. Um, so i got a little bit of a handle on that sort of like middle years American Western, like as far as like a classic American Westerns, High Noon isn't like the earliest, but it's definitely early on in the lineage. But no, like this week, but this week I went hard. Like I, this week I watched Yojimbo, I watched Fistful of Dollars, I watched Django twice, I watched Tsukiyaki Western Django again. You know read read all the applicable wikipedia articles you know (laughs) um and now i am like you know five percent there as on my knowledge of spaghetti (laughs) westerns how about you dan are you kind of in that same boat um same but probably even more antagonistic actually
0: where where i remember the first in my adult life the first time i watched like what i thought was a western was the good the bad and the ugly like me and my roommate just, I think it was like sophomore year happened to sit down and start watching because we knew it was like, oh, we're like, we're dudes. We're guys. <laughs> the movie that like college dudes watch together. Let's put it on. We both fell asleep in like 20 minutes.
2: So, <laughs> I, I kind so of put you guys, it out. You guys started with the third movie in a trilogy?
0: Well, because I was so <laughs> ignorant to uh
2: Westerns. It's like, oh, what's
0: the big Western? Oh, it's the good, the bad, the ugly. That's the one I know, you know? Um, yeah, and funny. I kind of n- put it down for a long time because in my head, westerns were kind of like basically like Marvel films of the '60s, or like just like overproduced, over like tropey and kind of same thing over and over, uh, like pretty conservative type films from or glorifying an era that was shouldn't really be glorified all that much, and like we like even especially I remember in like tw- uh, in 2020 when me and Jackson were holed up in a room together uh, during, and especially during like the protests and everything. And he wanted to throw on some Westerns I'm like, you know, right now, I just really don't want to fucking watch cowboy cops right now. Like it's mm-hmm. just not doing it for me. So it, I kind of always felt a little standoffish for the genre for that reason. But then when I went through some of the sight and sound lists, like, uh, the searchers popped up on that. The wild bunch popped up on that. Once upon in the west, Rio Bravo, so some like the big, big tent poles. And it at least made me realize, like, oh, these are like really cool looking. But even still, I was like, other than like the wild bunch, which is just mm. fucking nuts. Uh, oh, yeah. I was like, I mean, it, they're, they're fine, but they're not for me. Uh, for kind of the same reasons as I had said earlier, it's like it almost kind of confirmed. It's like, okay, this is like, I don't know. T- mid-20th century propaganda. Like, fine, interesting, but I'm not going to dig into this genre. Um, but Django, actually, it's, I'm glad you chose Django because now that's changing my mind on it, on it because I, the, the Westerns I had liked have been ones that have come out in like, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years where they are like firmly revisionist Westerns and they're mm-hmm. firmly like looking at the original Golden Age Westerns and trying to deconstruct them in some way. And I thought Django Unchained was a, an example of that. Uh, but now I'm seeing like they were doing that at the time, too, with a film like Django. So now I'm like, oh, i want I want to see some more of this shit. Like like what you're saying, it's like this really fun marriage of like pretty rebellious ideology with just a good genre flick. Mm-hmm. And that's uh it's harder to pull off mm-hmm. or it's harder than it looks
1: to pull that off. yeah, the, I actually really like that take on uh, Western says. The, like original mcu things i haven't really thought about it that way but i think that's absolutely valid oh yeah it's i mean i've even i've read stuff before that like like they
0: they offshoot. look at the trajectory of how western draws and fall and they're like trying to map the mcu on that and see like oh interesting like oh if they're in this phase especially when logan came out everyone's like mm-hmm. oh we're gonna start hitting the revisionist phase yeah. of the yeah, mcu western. which mm-hmm. that didn't happen but
1: yeah I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I mean, obviously, there's Outlaws. You referenced Wild Bunch, which is, I mean, was controversial when it released for being so the opposite of everything. And yeah. admit Peck and Paul, the noted uh, controversial contrarian himself. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot to be said for the problematic nature of a lot of Westerns looking back um, that honestly i mean spaghettis absolutely have that there is unquestionably a lot of difficult things especially regards violence towards women um in particular that's something they always showcase you can't measure showcasing that like there's no good amount like but i think even more so than traditional american westerns there is a level of violence towards anyone really brutality uh, yeah brutality Uh, yes
0: But yeah, well, we'll, we can get into like the specific differences in a little bit here. I think what was interesting to me is because probably similar to Jared, it sounds like you did some more research into this too, where Spaghetti Westerns was kind of just this vague thing you knew about of like this weird, like phenomenon that happened for like 10 years and then just poof, like just disappeared. And it, you know, leads to the obvious question of like, well, why did it start in the mid 60s? And why in Italy of all places? Like. Why the, why the fuck are Italians so interested in cowboys? <laughs> and I don't know about you guys, but just from like, just from cursory research, like a couple of things seem to pop out. One, uh, it, first off, it wasn't just Italy. Like Spain was making them. Uh, West Germany was making them. I think even the UK was making them. And also it's older than the 60s. Um, I think some of the earliest Italian films were quote unquote Westerns. Actually, I, I looked that up. the first ever Australian film was a Western. It was a huh. it was a Ned Kelly film, so basically like yeah, a Jesse James. Film. Yeah, um, true story. Like the idea of other countries doing westerns is not new, but why like this particular Lightning in a Bottle? Part of it is with Italy and Spain, they had you know the landscape. It looks like the American West, you, uh, Southern Italy and Southern Spain. Uh, but then specifically with uh, Italy, what I was seeing is like they definitely in post World War Two had the biggest film industry to work with. It's the Cinecita, I think, is like their version of Hollywood. And I mean, compared to the other European uh, production companies, like Italy definitely had the most robust one. Or that was like Mm. making Westerns at the time. So they had not only like the the environment for it. Oh, also, it's just way cheaper to make them in Italy (laughs) over the States. (laughs) So not only was it more cost effective for uh, American production companies to try their hand out there, almost in a way like horror movies, where it's like, okay, you can Mm -hmm. make... Uh, you can make these genre flakes for a little bit cheaper. You can you can kind of flood the market and like if one of four or five of them hit, you make your money back. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a combination yeah. of that. What was the last on that one? No, those were those are my main points. Did you guys uh, like when you guys are thinking about like why Italy, why the sixties? What what else were you guys like noticing?
2: Uh yeah, I, th- I think my answer is like pretty cynical based on like my. Very, very shallow knowledge, but it just seemed like Leone had a really good idea of remaking a samurai movie in the style of an American Western, and it just caught fire. And then, you know, imitators piled up and piled up and piled up and snowballed to a ridiculous extent. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where we talk about the classics now, but for like every, you know,
0: fistful of dollars, there's probably 30. Uh, you know the equivalent of like that horror movie Night Swim just came out. Like yeah. for every uh, Blumhouse comes out with Get Out, there's a Night Swim that comes
2: around, uh, comes along with it. Yeah, and I mean even like with like the unofficial sequels that Django spawned, like carbucci was already forthright with saying, "Oh man, I want to uh, emulate Leone's success, so I'm going to try the same thing, but I'm going to go bigger." And then from there, it's like. I, I want to say that the first two unofficial Django sequels were released the same year as Django, <laughs> 1966, and then every year thereafter for the next like 15 years, there were more and more of them. But uh, Connor, like, you obviously like you have a wealth of knowledge compared to Dan and I. What other factors do you think went into that, yeah. other than like the basics that we already talked about?
1: Uh, I mean, the I think the Cinecita Studios is, is something I found out as well. Um, and I've always attributed to, I think the history is so muddled. Like if you, if you go like look at the Fistful of Dollars Wikipedia page, for instance, you can see that there are like six different contrarian reports on whose idea any of this was um, and mm. stuff like that. Um, but I think a huge thing is, and I, I believe somebody touched on this earlier, I don't remember who, is the similarities to... I guess the horror scene at the time is you can shoot in somewhere like Spain or on these sets that everybody's using the same set, You're just bringing in this mixed European tech crew. Um, and then essentially you, as we've seen, you can just remake the same movie and just switch it up a little bit, you know? So you have this perfect setup to do um, essentially variations on the same movie and just keep running them off um, low budget. Like the, a ton of the different costume stuff people are taking from the same movies um there's a ton of little things like that where they're just cutting cost and it's just so cheap and it's Mm -hmm. just why not print money you know right (laughs) and i mean that that's definitely like a less artistic take and obviously you get a few gems every now and then and some directors trying to actually say some stuff with it um But I mean that's again same as horror like people are using that as a way to say or express different political feelings and stuff I think I think the history of horror and western uh run very parallel to each other um but I think also a huge thing and I don't know if we'll touch on this later or not but the the haze code in America gives them uh, european filmmakers a way to like really establish a foothold for a certain type of film viewer because they can do this brutal nasty gorehound kind of shit and by our standards it's really nothing like this is a fucking martyrs <laughs> but like relative to what you can get away with in any of the traditional john wayne's type stuff like just the nature of them showing like blood on Django's hands mm-hmm. um, is like a huge thing relative and so to be able to deliver a little bit more realism i think stands out to a lot of people i mean peck and pod adopts the same thing um, mm-hmm. so i think that becomes a big uh, aspect of why it becomes influential here but i think yeah. i think honestly production costs being so affordable is the reason we get so many um, Yeah, but, and just stock scripts i mean yeah and then and
2: just well true. just 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 like the timing of the Hayes code being abolished in 1968 basically meant that american audiences were hearing about these like insane italian westerns that had come out just a couple years prior then all of a sudden they get to see them that that must have contributed to just like that perfect timing must have also contributed mm-hmm. to you know the the supply and demand issue there and there was a ton of demand so got to meet the you know Italy was right there to meet the supply yeah just a whole open market that you can tap um mm-hmm. like you were saying i think you had mentioned
0: something along the lines of like okay this this at least creates the conditions for this to happen but it can't happen unless you actually have very talented people and singular people that take advantage of this particular time this particular place this particular uh material setup for making films and uh specifically with figures like Corbucci and Franco Nero. Um you want I I know you want to like expand a little bit more of like why are these two so important for getting this off the ground?
1: Yeah. Um so Corbucci is um interesting because he I wouldn't say he has a ton of things that you would really know outside of genre, but I think he is maybe I think unquestionably Leone is the more talented director in terms of technical skill. But to me, Corbucci is a much bolder filmmaker. Um, if you go through his work, he he has a presence in Giallo. He got to start doing kind of sword and sandal stuff. So he kind of jumps around in this sort of genre field. And as he builds out his career, he makes a few different spaghettis that are considered, I guess, kind of peak. A lot of people kind of consider if you're not going Leone, The Great Silence is the greatest spaghetti western of all time. That has been really hard to find. Uh, I saw it for the first time this past year. Criterion put out a snow western collection. Oh, yeah. Which for like three people, myself included, was like the greatest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> um, but that's just a movie where it's a mute gunslinger. They're all trucked up in the north. And Klaus Kinski is just playing himself, just the craziest motherfucker alive. Klaus Kinski, a
0: spaghetti western.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly mean-spirited, very dark, and very politically tinged. And then he has another movie with uh, Franco Nero called Companeros, um, that is uh, objectively just a political film about fascism and overthrowing (laughs) revolutions and different things like that. And so I think he is the one person who really exploits genre to is kind of actually say something. But at the same time, I think even more than that, he is just a very talented genre man in terms of what he sees as something that will have mass appeal. The idea of different imagery, the coffin, the Gatling gun, the way is kind of way more of a silent sort of anti-hero. I think he just sees things in the genre and follows that path. Um, rather than, I guess, trying to jump on the trend beyond just stealing basic plot lines from different people. Um, So I think his influence and his tendency towards creating something mean-spirited, but a little more thoughtful.
0: Yeah, like kind of what it makes, (laughs) like you're saying, it's like where other directors would take these tropes and these situations and think of like, okay, how can I make it recognizable for an audience so I can get it sold? He's more thinking it's like, okay, I have these archetypes. How can I explore them in new and interesting ways for the sake of storytelling first? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's very much the how can I play within genre confines to do something more thoughtful, which to me has always been a personal favorite thing for me. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like what the
0: French were doing with noir.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a more pulp, less intelligent version. (laughs) more better. fun yeah fun definitely yeah, I mean, more great. fun yeah I mean, <laughs> like i think that's the was thing it? we forget
0: yeah like 10 well, days ago last fun. year at marion bad and was Talk, it no excellent filmmaking yeah did i have fun no not at all
1: i almost fell asleep in that movie last year my brother <laughs> made me watch that friend of the show <laughs> <at him. laughs>
2: you know i actually think that the uh the camp and the elements of Django is closer in spirit to Yojimbo than Fistful of Dollars was. I was actually I hadn't seen Yojimbo since I was like 15 or something. And Mm -hmm. I went back and watched it. And the first thing that struck me is like it knows it's silly. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, there's this like super jaunty, almost like big band soundtrack happening the whole time in Yojimbo where uh, Mifune is like, really, really playing it straight. But as soon as he walks into the frame, you've got this like super silly music that's playing every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, Fistful of Dollars takes itself so seriously. Like you can see Clint Eastwood wanting to make sure he looks good and cool. And stuff like that. <laughs> uh, Django does not have that. Ooh. Like Frank does Niro doesn't, doesn't seem to have quite that ego. Like he looks filthy. He is a total rapscallion and, and similarly, like the music is like super like silly and jaunty. He's got his own fucking theme song. Like it rules. he has like, he, he has, like <laughs> this like he has this long ass entrance, like a pro wrestler like, theme song <laughs> and like, bes- like bespoke entrance m- moves. And I I actually do think it's like by far the superior film between fistful of dollars and Django. Like I go Django like mm. every single time. Mm.
0: Well, to speak, I haven't seen Fistful of Dollars. So I'll have to watch it way in there. But all I know is I fell asleep in Good, Bad, and the Ugly.
1: <laughs> I mean, that is—I was going to say for most people that would be a dig because a lot of people can't get through a three-hour movie. But you notably watch a shitload of long movies. So I do, I do like, I like them long. So, I like them yeah, I guess that is a detriment to Leone more than your. Taste. <laughs> well, I
0: was also like twenty at the time. I wasn't exactly watching Bela Tar films at that point. Yeah, and, well, those, those are like
2: 100 <laughs> minutes each. I think I right. can handle them. <laughs> yeah,
0: and yeah, Django also, a crisp, like, 95 minutes.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Get in, get out. Oh, Perfect. yeah. Kill some Where people with the gun.
0: The old tight 90, we don't really have much of that anymore.
1: Bring it back, please, God.
0: <laughs> um, but Yeah, just kind of now going into broadly and Spaghetti Western, that was, because you had, you had kind of framed this as much as, like, Django is, like, the in such a massive genre this is sort of if you're going to choose a starting point which is almost a futile task anyways like this is the best encapsulation of what spaghetti westerns are uh like a good like urtext text of sorts um and so that got me thinking like maybe it's unfair to just extrapolate okay django is all spaghetti westerns and let's compare it to my understanding of american westerns but like i saw a bunch of like very clear differences between the two and i couldn't kept or i couldn't help but thinking like a lot of them stem from the fact that like you would you had mentioned it with like the political themes of this is like this is a an artistic cohort of people that lived through literal fascism and so they just have like no time for authority and dogma and like receive national myths or something but they're working in a genre that like sells that in spades so like watching that attitude being put into this genre i thought had some really interesting effects i don't know if you guys have that too
2: uh yeah well like it's no accident that a lot of the the roots of this story are you know japanese and that the Mm. italians and the spanish and the germans are the ones that really pounced on the same same exact template Yeah. right yeah yeah
0: Yeah, like That's they're all borrowing these story, like these storylines from one another. Yeah, I never really thought about that. don't neither. But yeah, like like what you're saying is like there's so much like cannibalism between samurai films and westerns, yeah. and like I'd always mm-hmm. wondered that for a long time. I never had a great answer. Where I love samurai films, but maybe until this week, I just had no time for westerns. So I'm like, well, why was I so interested in the closest analog to westerns, but not westerns itself? And I think it's. That might be part of the answer. Is like well, a lot a lot of the samurai films I'm watching are post-World War II, so it's kind of got that like self-critique in there of the myths that
2: they're playing with. Hmm. Sure. But also like killing someone with a sword is like harder (laughs) than killing someone with a gun and therefore cooler. It is cooler. Which which is definitely um kind of the the central uh, sort of uh, friction that happens, and Yojimbo Jimbo is the one guy with the gun. Is the like, gun guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the gun guy is like, like clearly characterized as just a punk ass bitch for using a gun, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which <And> is not <laughs> the case in this movie. Not <laughs> the case for any of the spaghetti westerns.
1: No, very <laughs> uh, much uh,
0: Well, that's like that's what I was gonna say. Is like, I, I would wonder how I'd feel about samurai films. I don't think I've seen too many pre World War II or like pure Imperial Japan where they're like fully bought into their own myth because like you know american westerns like we won world war ii so we like we're really like we're very high on our national myths in our histories that we made of ourselves so we don't like we have feel no desire to examine them with a critical lens but somewhere like japan has a you know they have a little bit more call for being reflective about these uh, archetypes that they prop up as like uh national heroes
2: right well Mm -hmm. you combine that with like the actual romanticism of looking back at the old west and literally just like we abolish slavery let's celebrate by going crazy like like, just like just just that whole time period like just uh that where you know the quote-unquote old west resides also just has that sort of just like high off our own farts like (laughs) post-war just like celebrating yeah, and like the whole manifest destiny of it all, too,
0: that there was hmm. you know, apparently no one out there. So we just it was just <laughs> us running around, manifesting <laughs> destiny over here. We manifested over there, uh, maybe killed some engines over here. But, you know, whatever it happens, they, they got in the way.
1: Got to manifest,
0: which I did find that interesting in the difference of Spaghetti Westerns for Connor. You can maybe fill this in more broadly. Uh, that there are no Native Americans in this movie where I think I, we talked about this on the phone earlier where I think this movie is too self-contained for that mm-hmm. but um, Usually that's like regardless of like the historical reality of Where they were which it's not even clear. They don't say like they say near the border But that like this is the Texas border. This is the Arizona border. This is the California yeah. border. You don't know you just know it's by the border but even though, like, yeah, the historic reality of whether there would have been Native Americans around or not, like, they always seem, in American Westerns, to at least be, like, a presence in the film somewhere. And here, they're just, uh, in this, and I don't know about spaghetti Westerns more broadly, they're just absent.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we talked about this, and I think this movie, for the reasons of being so contained um, and trying to follow the basic Yojumbo plot, reduces itself to two factions in the wider world of spaghetti um native american presence is definitely more felt uh franco nero actually appears in a very highly regarded one uh called question mark probably murdering that title um where he plays a white man raised by native americans which we'll not get into the politics of that or anything right now but (laughs) it is it is definitely a thing that happens like there is an indigenous presence in some of them but it is and i'm going to make a generalization based on my knowledge which i'll probably get flayed alive for but there is less of a nature of presenting indigenous people and native Americans specifically as like an opposing force, like a lot of traditional Westerns do, um, because in many of the spaghettis, the opposing force is always going to be like such and such army or such and such roving band of bandits or whatever, like they're, and like you have those, but at the same time, those are so taken out of time and place. Um, like Jenga, for example, we have, a Mexican revolutionary force, but like, we don't know where we are. We don't know any details there. And then we have the Confederates who Mm -hmm. are, um, directly based on like the red shirt ex Confederate groups that kind of become like KKK eventually. Um, but like beyond that, we're very much like out of time and place beyond knowing that this is post-Civil War. And I think that, uh, sort of ambiguity goes through a lot of things. And sometimes it's more precise in the genre, but I think that adds to a lot of um, relatability and bringing a sort of universal appeal because you can be like, Oh, that's the fascist. And that's the race. like, yeah, it you makes can it kind of fill in appreciate. what you want them to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But or that's what I love about like American Westerns had a kind of a bitch of a time dealing with this. And this movie minces no words. It's like, Oh, Confederates, they fucking suck (laughs) actually. And it was bad and we don't like them. They're irredeemable. Where like, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, especially John Wayne Westerns or even the searchers in particular, where it's like, Mm -hmm. there's still movies all the way into like the sixties. We're still doing some like lost cause romanticism about the South where like, maybe it'll even go so far as like saying like, yeah, you know, the South was wrong, but there was, there was some noble spirit that was lost with the, the spurning of Confederate soldiers. And like, Mm -hmm. uh, Django is kind of like, no, fuck these guys. Like, these are <laughs> going to become the KKK. These guys suck ass. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a a refreshingly European <laughs> perspective <laughs> on uh, American history. Where I do love when like I love watching other countries' interpretations of like our cultural products, and just it, you kind of get like this interesting outsider's perspective. Like, oh, so how does how does everyone see us? Like, what what do we look like from uh, outside? And like the the shit that just they have no time for i i find refreshing mm. um but and, and that goes into speaking of like the john wayne the the franco nero of it all where you know there, there's no white hats and black hats in this one there are no like clear good guys clear bad guys and even in the even in the more like when the western becomes a little more mature towards the back half of the 20th century they'll do a little bit more moral grayness probably in response to spaghetti westerns but like this one like know what like good and bad are almost irrelevant questions it's just kind of who's in whose way like everyone wants this it's warring factions that want the same thing morality is kind of beside the point like to judge these characters on whether they're like good or bad just kind of seems silly Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and like i could never see it i could never see john wayne or clint Eastwood. yeah Clint eastwood you could probably see him doing that but you could never see john said these days yeah yeah Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the, I think definitely this is. I mean, Django, and I don't know if later we'll get into just kind of the different motivations here, but this is definitely gray at best. I mean, at the, I think rewatching today, um, a big thing I noticed is you start the movie, and the first thing is the girl being whipped and stuff. And you're like, you, you're given the shot of Django up on the hill, and you're like, oh, he's going to save her. That's dope. And then immediately the Confederates are the one who shoot the Mexicans, Mm -hmm. and then Django comes down and kills all them. But like, you don't immediately get the bad guys getting killed by the good guy to save the girl. And pretty much immediately after he saves her, he's like, "I'm actually not sure if I should kill you." Like that is almost verbatim a line that he says to her. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I should have saved you at all. Like, and that's, I mean, you don't say that if you're a white hat. Like that's very clear (laughs) and there's no point in this where he does anything really outside of being motivated by revenge or self-interest. I mean, he's trying to get the gold. He's trying to avenge this vaguely discussed, um, former love, but I mean, he gives a shit about no one else. Like he'll do a little bit here and there to try and save different people, but that's absolutely not his prerogative, which is directly opposed to so much of the genre and self.
2: Well, and like uh, what many people consider like a fundamental of screenwriting, like the old cliche, save the cat.
1: Uh, uh-huh. mm, like, yeah.
2: and, and it's just like amazing in this movie that literally, like you pointed out, he's presented with the opportunity to save the proverbial cat and d- kind of doesn't. Mm hmm. Yeah, you, you just gotta right make the sure that the cat doesn't snap its neck on the way down.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs>
2: exactly. Because he <laughs> might be able to extract like some use from the cat.
1: No, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, which Holy like selfish. I think is a more
0: probably a more honest view of like how people were in the lawless parts of the West. It's like pure self-interest. Like there's not a lot of resources to go on out there. So you kind of band together and use what skill or talent or other people you have to control as much gold, food, booze, or women that you can.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but so I do fun. like
0: that, that. That's another thing that specifically within the character of Django more because like Django is very interesting that like, like I had said at the top, like once you saw this movie like, oh, I know like a hundred movies that have a Django fill in. So like he's so archetypal uh, in the same or functioning the same that way that it? I think Connor you pointed out. Yeah, I think it's archetypal, right? I think it's arch- archetypal. Archetypal, arch- archipelago. I got no. I think I think I think you're adding <laughs> we'll syllables, laugh. and this is archetypal. archetype No, I'm going archetyp. So I need to go archetypal. Um, Archet. Arch- archetypal. That because he's sort of this blank slate, like man out of time, like Rorschach test of character. You can pluck him and you can put him in uh feudal Japan. You can put him in the future. You can make him a spy. You can make him a, a pirate. Like you can do all sorts of things with him. um but I thought, like, the thing that, particularly at the time where you know it's playing off the archetype of, uh like, you know, the leading man in a western, where what I thought was very different is like, Django, Django likes to fuck a little bit. Like he he doesn't just like, yeah, gr- he doesn't just like put put the leading lady in his arm and like dip her down and say like, <laughs> baby, I can't I, I can't stay. This town's not made for men like me. And then right off in the sunset, now he uh. He he goes to brothels and he uses them, uh, unlike mm. what a lot of other leading men in American westerns would do, where they're in brothels, there are prostitutes, but it's like this sort of elephant in the room about like, hey, what's what's this guy doing here in a brothel? Why why is he hanging out here? And this is much more honest about like, you know, he's just a, he's just a dude who has like desires and fulfills them in ways that he has available to him.
1: Yeah, Django fucks. Uh,
0: <laughs> the uh, it, man with no name does not <laughs> <laughs> at all it it more shows that like why he's such a good archetype to film where it's like he has things that he wants and he goes and gets them in like yeah whatever way necessary where you see i don't know we'll, we'll probably get to the point where you just start th- hurling out characters that have similar Oh, let's things. do it i'm like, ready uh, i mean john wick's a huge one that's very similar um, to him oh, um oh uh, man
2: a, a even straight, like chris more Oh, hmm? I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go like ahead. Spike from Cowboy Bebop is pretty much uh, Django it's, it's to its Django as well. Yeah. <clears throat> even like far more prestigious characters. Like I think of like, you know, the golden age of prestige television that we're arguably still in. Like Walter White mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. is like a, is like a anti-hero or just straight mm-hmm. up villain who like basically worms his way into some new territory, plays opposing factions against each other for his own ends because he's a little bit more badass than they are. Or like uh, Marty Bird in Ozark is also a Django Mm -hmm. who like does the exact same thing that Walter White did. Or Um, Django
0: and Django Unchained.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I haven't seen Best of Django in like Daniel Plainview, Mm -hmm. like also or like yeah. Anyway, because he need not be a hero. Like he's not necessarily a protagonist.
1: It's just operating in the grain. sometimes it goes either way. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Like this is we're getting very close to i don't know if there's a name for this i've always called them ronin films mm. um but like paul schrader's whole au and yeah, yeah just taxi the driver. idea of just the lone dude who's violent and like trying to maybe kind of save his soul like he's kind of thinking about maybe i'll get right but like most of the time he fucks up and ends up in prison or some shit
0: is Django like, one of the first literally me's
1: yeah yeah we i mean this is drive This is just drive <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's
1: it? I... that's why I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the but, but I mean for real, like we we are coming up on uh, essentially kind of an origin for for lack of a better term, like the literally me thing. like this is such a thing of this is the lone wolf who's capable but realistic and that he fucks up and wants to fuck and you know, is not as smart as he thinks he is, but gets shit done ultimately like there's an appeal to that but also like a realism Um, yeah well
2: it it also doesn't quite get shit done like it actually (laughs) ends with consequences did you achieve anything yeah yeah everyone being fucked up in some way including django Mm -hmm. yeah because i mean the basic goals he he fails like he does not get the gold
0: uh it it falls into the quicksand (laughs) and everyone dies at the end yeah. like the town's no better off, or like sometimes even that's like okay. Well, Django didn't succeed at his goals, but he killed off you know the the bad guys, and now the town is safe.
2: It's like no, that like mud pile is exactly <laughs> no, they're all the same. <laughs> they're all started dead, like the yeah. like the, right. And Django isn't the like even like the barkeep die
1: and like, yeah yeah and
2: instead of getting saved at the last second at the end, both in your Jimbo and Dollars. Uh, and Sukiyaki Western Django. No, and Django Django. <laughs> Everyone is dead except the, the girl. Is did the girl? The girl live?
1: The girl. The girl. It's kind of like vague. She's injured, yeah. but implied that she is fine. And Django is technically alive, but hands like. But importantly, know. like,
0: there's no scene where they, they like get together
1: and it's like, mm-hmm. oh,
0: Django, like, we must run off together into the sunset, even though
1: we're both all fucked up from the movie. Yeah. I mean, literally the movie ends with him just killing the dudes and jumping yeah. away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. Which, is,
0: I mean, I respect- was uh, probably
1: <laughs> no, you're no and get out, you know,
0: like similar to drive. Like it's much more honest about the result of violence. Mm-hmm. Like there's some, like a lot of times there's nothing redemptive about it, which is a very like, uh, at least within like American film storytelling, that's a very common thread of like violence being something that can redeem and restore justice. Where mm-hmm. this one's like, nope, it's kind of just, uh, just another step <laughs> in this nasty old cycle of violence. Like, we'll probably do this again next week, kids.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which is probably truer to the American West. Um, yeah, and yeah, and I like too that, like, you know, with your traditional leading man hero kind of figure in in stories, where they're usually like, I don't know, they're they're almost like perfectly good at everything and they're better than everyone at everything. He's like the best gunslinger and the smartest guy and the and the most charming guy. Where it's like he's I mean he's a good gunslinger, but the only reason why he's doing so well is he's just got this big goddamn Gatling gun that's <laughs> like <laughs> That's like so overpowered compared to everyone else. But what another thing that I really appreciated, which actually like slipped into heist films, was the long sequence of showing exactly how he's going to get away with that gold and get away with it, where they really Mm -hmm. labor through like him kind of like he clearly has a plan. Like he's not Mm -hmm. immediate about it, but he's kind of like fumbling around a little bit. He doesn't look super assured. Like this is no Ocean's Eleven. This isn't Brad Pitt like suavely, you know, manipulating his way through where every move is perfectly timed and choreographed and like i i think i I think i was telling connor like it kind of reminded me of thief where it like really carefully shows like the craftsmanship of pulling off a fast one on someone it's not like Mm -hmm. oh like one moment we're like oh sneaky gotcha because i like bent this one interpretation of the rule it's like no he's like underhanded and kind of kind of slimy about how he does it
1: yeah it's i mean it's like a i don't know if this term is applicable but it feels right uh it's like a trade craft kind of thing yeah you know like here's a guy succeeding because he's doing like really technical things that you're getting to see which thief is the perfect example like safe cutting and stuff or michael Mann in general really is yeah at this. <laughs> but yeah yeah i mean i love the idea of him just yo jimbo is so he plays the different sides off each other and same thing for fistful of dollars, and Django is not smart enough to do this, so he just kills everything. <laughs> yeah, like at no point does he try to like conspire with one side to pit him against the other. He just kills everything that he comes across.
0: He does even by the by the standards of a Gatling gun, though, like I felt like he had like unlimited bullets in that, which like first off in in genre films, whatever, like if your six shooter can fire off 20 bullets. (laughs) But even like in the rules of I don't know, you could probably count on the the chain of bullets that he had come out both sides. There's probably like 15 seconds worth of rapid fire and he
2: could fire that bitch off for like an hour. But, but at least there are these inserts of, like, showing the ammo going in and, like, mm-hmm. ammo coming out the other side. You got to watch Sukiyaki Western Django and compare in that regard. I guarantee <laughs> you they're playing more fast and loose with the ammo rules in the Takachi film. Which
1: yeah, is sort of King like of John Wick,
2: where that's, like, kind of the, not the
0: shtick of it, but, like, they make sure to show like he only has x amount of bullets and if he gets Mm -hmm. hurt it hurts i mean now these later john wicks he's starting to become
1: basically uh, at this point
0: yeah you know impervious and perfect which i'm kind of fine Mm -hmm. with it let's just like see what wild shit john wick can do but the first one was definitely more like uh Mm -hmm. he's very limited by the material reality of having a gun
1: yeah I mean, the second one, there's like a whole plot point where he only has like eight bullets and you're like counting shots with him and he's trading out guns and shit. But (laughs) yeah, I think that's definitely a little bit of that here, but also infinite ammo cheat on the Gatling gun, you know? Oh,
2: man, that's still cool. If we're going to, if we're going to like, you know, ding every movie that plays fast and loose Mm -hmm. with the ammo rules, then very, very very few movies to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, every Bond movie can go out the window now.
1: That, I mean, that would actually be a pretty entertaining list to see, like, what even does fit within that. Like, what survives. What isn't line, yeah. Probably I like feel three like movies.
2: I, I will, I'd have to go back and watch them all, but I feel like progressively the John Wick movies get less and less concerned. Like, the first one, they, like, went to incredible lengths to, like, show him reloading, like, frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then by the fourth one, he's just, like, got that, like, dragon's breath. Gun, oh, my just, God. Like, <laughs> infinite, infinite and amazing.
1: It's so fucking cool. The top <laughs> down. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I fucking love watching video game aesthetics creep their way into like big budget mm-hmm. blockbuster mm-hmm. films.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, which that that's actually something with Django too. Was the the whole thing where he's like using the coffin to do the gold heist feels like me trying to sneak through like a mission in a video game. That's yeah, 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 like, but, like, yeah. Quick save here. Like I'm gonna push the coffin across the ledge. Like
0: <laughs> it's kind of like he's a. I, uh, I remember. Do you guys remember the old uh, Bond game Nightfire?
1: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Where it felt like his gatling gun, like we banned a couple guns in, <laughs> like if we're doing playing against each other, it's like you can't use a laser gun, like
1: the, yeah. or the
0: the sentinel, where it's the one you could actually guide and point mm-hmm. at. Like, oh yeah, those, yeah. like that's what the yeah. when he pulls out the gatling gun, you see like this smirk on his face, where it seems like he's like, yeah, I've got I've got the gotcha. what the game shark, and I've got the the hacks, <laughs> and I have the gun that no one's allowed to have in this game. Yeah, but Django
2: still like he's so he's still fallible though like Mm -hmm. watching him try watch watching him trying to pull off that heist there's like a slapstick to it where he's Mm -hmm. like a little bit clumsy with it (laughs) like he's not the like sole proprietor of that gatling gun either you know yeah other people Mm -hmm. use it yeah Mm -hmm. i thought was wild like
0: how many other movies where the protagonist's like signature tool or weapon is given to other people that's usually like a massive moment if like Luke Skywalker gives his lightsaber to someone else. That's like like the the emotional peak of a film. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he just let yeah.
2: everyone use it. Like, ah, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. 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 Like the gun and his dick. Like same rules <laughs> apply. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a dirty dick. There's no way he doesn't have something.
2: No, that's, that's a something. dirty dick. Very <gasps> dirty dick. <Yeah.
0: laughs>
2: Where'd we go from there? Um
0: uh, <laughs> so we kind of talked about the mostly the americans but uh, i also want to talk about like the both forces of antagonism where it's sort of django against like established authority for lack of a better word um Mm -hmm. like it's less you could say this is strictly like oh anti-confederate or anti like you know uh authoritarian american stuff it's also anti like mexican military too uh, because it's Mm -hmm. showing how like even though these people have like the badge or the 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 rank or the the prestige that goes with being a part of some established group or or organization or army or whatever, they're in effect have the same goals as Django. They just want to get theirs and they want to control their own little fiefdom, essentially. Like these are like feudal factions fighting against each other. Um, you know, that's why it goes over <laughs> the samurai film so easily. But Django just he basically is like, you know, he's he's really the Joker, you know, he's just <laughs> against all authority, just an agent of chaos, because like, he doesn't really have a goal past getting the like, why does he even want the gold? Other than like, eh, it's gold.
1: And I think that's about the start and end of it. Really? Like, it's not like, yeah, oh, you know,
0: my grandma got dysentery on the way to the Oregon Trail. <laughs> so I need to like pay for her operation or something like that. It's like, no, nah, I just
2: kind of want a bunch of fucking gold. Yeah. Well, there's a little, there's like, there's something about like in his head where maybe if he's rich and just set for life that somehow that'll Mm -hmm. like ease the pain of his, his dead girlfriend, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Something's going on there. We just don't get much insight. Which that feels a little Mad Max, actually.
1: Yeah. 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 I was waiting for that one. But yeah, there's something to be said for the, like, he talks a little bit in passing about like, essentially, like, this is my coffin. Like, I'm trying to kill off Django. Um mm-hmm. so there's something to be said about this money makes a new life or something, but I don't know. I don't think the movie cares <laughs> enough to really have him have more of a motive yeah. than just money. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't
2: think this movie's really playing on that political wavelength very, very hard either. I think no. I think I disagree with your your whole like thesis there, <clears throat> Dan, where like these aren't really it's not Django versus like this is the establishment. It's Django, like on one side you've got like some mexican revolutionaries on the other side you've got some like uh failed american revolutionaries (laughs) like 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 neither one of them are like established power like they're they're all they're all rogues and it's just Django just happens to be the the you know doesn't doesn't really have the numbers on his side
0: yeah, and I think that's interesting that he never like that's another thing that's very common in your classic like adventure hero story is like the team up moment where he gets his mm. you know band of misfits together and they they fight you know the the big bads where it's like he is it's just him and his giant giant
1: thick <laughs> potent gun. Yeah, there's definitely no seven samurai type moment like you don't get a crew together or anything. But yeah, I mean, I think Jared is 100% right. This is not one of the really political entries you know like it's it's political enough that things are established and you can be like oh these dudes suck because they're <laughs> confederates and they're little bitches." um and then the revolutionary mexicans suck because they're needlessly violent and hateful like but there's nothing like politically minded really beyond no that, like, you don't know they established geopolitics
0: yeah, you don't know like yeah. their aims or what they mm-hmm. ultimately want. I mean, you can fill in the gap with the Confederates, <clears throat> Uh, but the the Mexicans seem a little bit more vague about what their goal would mm-hmm. be and like
1: broadly. Yeah, they um, I mean, they're, they're using the gold to fund a revolution, but like you don't know anything beyond that. Yeah.
0: You no. Know? Um, but I, yeah, I think it. Yeah, it really only has some kind of. It's more the meta text that's political at all is that knowing that this mm-hmm. is in response to current westerns that gives it any of that edge. Like, within the text itself, yeah, it's
2: pretty much just Mm
0: -hmm. war of
2: all against all kind of thing. Yeah, and and I seriously doubt, like, Corbucci gave a fuck about, like, actually contrasting American Westerns. Mm. Well, I don't know, because I I think
0: at the time, like, firmly making Confederates, like, not even giving them an ounce of humanity or, like, well, you know, they they died for, or they, they got spurned for something they believe in. Like that was still very accepted, uh, historical truth, quote unquote truth at the time. Mm-hmm. So like, I think by just saying like, nah, fuck these guys, they fucking suck. Like that is a statement, at least at the time. Like now it's less of a statement, not all the way, not a statement anymore, or <laughs> anymore, sadly, but, um, but by just like openly and loudly saying like, fuck these dudes. It's I think it does tie back to like, Corbucci is someone that came of age during fascist Italy and probably saw some parallels to the Confederate project and Mussolini and was like, mm-hmm. maybe I have no time for these guys. I don't need to humanize them because they suck ass.
1: Yeah. yeah I see You that. do get
0: more yeah. humanization from the Mexicans. Like you spend more time mm-hmm. with them learning about them.
1: The Nzingo yeah. is shown to have some sort of prior relationship with them. But I mean, Corbucci in general, this is probably like his least political, because this is kind of where he breaks in. And Mm -hmm. Companeros, which I referenced earlier, which is a later film, I think it's 1970, uh, Franco Nero teams up, and it's a partner Western. Uh, Nero is like American arms dealer or something, and he's working alongside a Mexican revolutionary against um, this more fascist presentation of the Mexican government. And there's a few others later in the game. But so this one is definitely the least on the active political statements being made kind of spectrum. Mm. But it is, you could definitely say it's a testing of Waters to a degree that he has made at least a minor statement about Confederacy. He's introduced players in the Revolutionary and shown that they're not necessarily good guys. Like, even if the Revolution is right, um, they're not necessarily good guys because of that. Like, so you're delving into the waters a little bit with this, but it's it's nothing that is abrasive and direct. Like it's ambiguous at best. You know, yeah, I'm trying to think of something that would sun. be
0: something today that would be dabbling similar to that, because <clears throat> then that would be my I guess Logan kind of
1: Alex Garland's Civil War coming. Oh, I'm excited for that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> there
0: you go. I'd say Civil War's not political at all. There's
1: nothing on its mind.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. just vague vague (laughs) nothing on that one no uh yeah i don't know really what would be logan yeah i mean the logan is really closely related in terms of just what it is i guess the boys
0: yeah would be the closest
1: ooh interesting speak on that elaborate well it's something that
0: in the world of a genre that's pretty much dominating the you know cultural zeitgeist of the moment which is super hey, so
1: superheroes as the, superhero yeah, yeah, at the time you know, at
0: the time it's western and it's something that's like just not only critiquing but just clearly has i don't want to call it disdain but is just like can we can we fucking stop with this like the, these mm. aren't things to worship these aren't figures to admire this is what they're hmm. actually like i, I guess that yeah, the, the real man is kind of, i think i talked about that too mm. where the, the newest batman Robert Pattinson's is like Franco Nero, but not the other Batman from the 21st century mm-hmm. where it shows like, Oh, if you behaved this way and you lived in the world like this, you're a little fucking freak. Okay. You're a little mm-hmm. weirdo. Like you're not like cool. You're <laughs> kind of off your rocker a bit.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So I, I w- what that.
0: I'm saying is would Frank would Django listen to Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh man, when I was watching that movie and there's, you know, this this like they re- that, that whole s- sequence of that song starts, I just thought, man, Kurt would have loved his song being in a movie like this. <laughs> it's what he would have, especially as uh, the other day I was walking through Target and saw some Nirvana sweatshirts. I was like, oh,
1: Kurt would have
2: loved Nirvana sweatshirts being sold at Walmart. <laughs> it's
1: what he stood for. Certainly it's what he died for. Wanted.
2: Uh, yeah, I guess that at least was pretty
0: much all I wanted to talk about. I wanted to dig further into like the legacy, but I think we've just kept throwing out like so yeah. many different cultural touchstones. Yeah. If there's any that you guys want to like yeah. spend a little bit more time sitting. Here. I've got
2: a, I've got a big one that comes to
0: mind. Yeah, and
1: I think, the, I'm Sure. All of us have at least one big one. To throw.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to throw this one out because it really like has just a cool mechanism that combines the, uh, the origins of like the, the Kurosawa movies with uh, the Westerns of the sixties, mm. but uh, Westworld on HBO mm-hmm. um, did yes. this really amazing thing where like the whole first season, it's really in the vein of like a more sort of nihilistic or <clears> exploitative <throat> spaghetti Western. And the second season then introduces the sister park Shogun world, Where it's all Japanese samurai shit, and all the storylines are like basically the same, but just Mm. Japanese now. And I thought that was like pretty genius. And there's definitely some like individual, and when I say storylines, like storylines within within the the world of the park on the show or parks on the show. There's definitely some kind of specific callbacks to Django-like figures that the audience members get to sort of play in, in mm-hmm. either one or, you know, uh, um, Senjuro type figures on the, on the Japanese side. And I thought that was really fun. And just, uh, Red Dead Redemption as well. I already mentioned it, but both of those movies are like absolutely just completely chalked to the brim with references to specifically the spaghetti Westerns way mm-hmm. more than like classic American Westerns.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I have yeah. not played it, so I do not know too much about that.
1: Then no, they yeah, they're definitely in the gray, kind of in that Wild Bunch sort of vein. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, everybody there is a black hat, essentially, <laughs> and you can choose to be a white hat, really. But, hmm. yeah. I mean, it's a redemption arc, really. Phenomenal fucking games, though. But the most the oh, Gold yeah. thing is something I'd forgotten about. I, for, so I watched that when it was live. Uh, what was that, like 2020, season two? um yeah i
2: remember season two dropping and being like oh my god they're fucking doing it they're pointing mm. out the fucking samurai and western thing (laughs) they they know they get it
1: well the it was uh haruyuki sanada who Mm. i love uh is like their django their like main ronin dude i was Mm. so psyched to see him yeah Yeah. that was a great take
0: connor what do you got for uh uh, a Um, famous reiteration of django
1: So, we had a few different ones that we kind of tossed out back and forth. Um, I mean, we mentioned Drive and Mad Max and Taxi Driver and kind of the whole work of kind of the Lone Wolf type movie. An interesting one that I wanted to toss out because it's something that's been on my mind because I just saw it, but also I think because it's so cyclical as that it draws on its origin and also on. The Western sensibilities is Netflix somehow put out this phenomenal show called Blue Eye Samurai. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's an anime, and it's essentially doing sort of a revenge um, fantasy, like it's this hardcore revenge tale about this biracial samurai killing her way through this feudal, you know, fictional-ish era, but the well, the storyline itself is not similar the character herself uh mizu the protagonist is this extremely capable fighter um but like not the best tactician or anything but just absolutely cold-blooded doesn't isn't putting different forces against each other but like also just unrelenting unstopping i mean it's Django setting the pistol up on the grave like mm. even when you have nothing you're still non-stop going after this revenge and that sort of unrelenting nature I thought reminded me a lot of that and I mean that's a samurai thing in general um but just the sort of glee and the blood soaked nature of it and there is in fact this huge throwdown midway through the season that's essentially the Gatling gun fight but with katanas extremely cool extremity. so that that's just the most recent one but I mean Mad Max is the one that initially sprang to mind is just max is just Django, you know, like Yeah, everything, yeah. Partic-
2: particularly in the road warrior.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like um, just maybe I'll help you, you know,
2: <laughs> as long as it suits me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally selfish.
0: Um, the one I wanted to throw out is like a, probably, ah, blue Red Samurai samurai might be even newer, uh, but it came out this year and it's, kind of an interesting one where it's very much a Django figure, and it's very much, much uh, more, not necessarily within a genre, but within a single filmmaker, looking back at the figures that he's propped up in the way that uh, his big cultural touchstones or characters or figures have been interpreted. And he's like, oh, I need to kind of like reflect on what genie I set out of the bottle, and that's uh, The Killer by Fincher. That's very much a Django. And it's yes. very, like, like Django, it's like, this guy is not admirable. Like, <laughs> don't, finish, like, unless you're, you know, if you, if you watch Fight Club when you're like 18, 17 or something like that, and you think, oh, these guys are so fucking cool. Like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I get it. It's like sort of a fun adolescent power fantasy. Like, I can see how you could misinterpret that. Uh, but the killer leaves no room for <laughs> that. But it still plays into, like, the same sort of tropes and arc that would ha- be like a tyler durden or uh you know mm-hmm. a travis bickle or a django or any of the quote-unquote literally me characters but it's clear it's like yeah this guy's really capable but he's kind of a fucking loser all right like do you, do you really want this and maybe some listening. people say yeah and it, it is him kind of lamenting there he's like he's asking that question he's kind of the movie kind of seems to say it's like yeah i think a lot of people do want this and that kind of sucks
1: mm-hmm yeah and just the the questions that movie brings up of just like the honestly like he's a, he has he achieved anything like that's a movie where well he does wind up like you
0: know sitting next to his boo thing and his uh like his tropical paradise house
1: <laughs> yeah. but i mean what are the odds he lasts you know much like the end of jango but... it's
0: like <clears throat> yeah okay he got through this one ordeal but like Next week, it's going to happen all over again to him.
1: It's the same question of like, are, is he actually good at his job? Like that whole thing. Is, like, is Django like a brilliant character, or yeah, yeah, he yeah, just happen to have a Gatling gun? Like it's that same thing. Of uh, they're fallible, you know.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not nearly as cool, even though they think they're cool.
1: They are both very yeah. handsome.
0: That I does help. That, um mm-hmm. and now just more broadly i mean we basically are already in the recommendation section we we're just talking yeah about- we already talked about all my recommendations <laughs> oh i have i have one more uh kind of similar to what i was saying about with the killer it's uh got got a django character and it. it's a revenge thriller and this one more than the killer it just shows how fucking it is gross it is depraved it hurts to watch it's not fun that is and it, we've already talked about the director. That is Takashi Miike's Ichi the Killer. I would um, double Django with that one. That's a good time. Mm-hmm. Especially given the yep. ending of that movie. Have you guys both seen it? I don't want to spoil it. Yes. Yeah.
1: I have indeed. We're just... Yep, sir.
0: No one gets what they want. Everyone dies at the end. It's pathetic.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. No, I'll, I'll pile on. Because I, I there was a couple specific things I wanted to bring up about... Sukiyaki Western Django. Yeah. So oh, yeah. so so Connor better get a another Mike recommendation <laughs> in the queue here. But uh no, I, I actually think Sukiyaki Western Django is my favorite of all of the, you know, Yojimbo remakes that we've discussed tonight. <laughs> um, it, it corrects a few things. Like one thing that that Connor brought up right at the top of the hour was like, you know, all of these movies treat women rather poorly. Mm. And uh there are certainly like women in peril and in uh, grief and, and all that stuff in Sukiyaki Western Django, but like the badass legendary gunslinger at the center of it is an older woman, which is like fucking rad, I think. Cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Django character is sort of like more along for the ride. And it is more like densely plotted like there's this whole Romeo and Juliet thing going on. There's actually a lot of Shakespeare in it. Like there's this whole Romeo and Juliet subplot that's going on. There's a character that's obsessed with Henry the 6th, which is like it's like a played for 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 laughs. But also it combines the eastern and the western stuff like in a really weird interesting way. Like you've got one of the one of the the like lead villains on on one faction is like an old school samurai who does crazy shit with his katana. <laughs> The other guy is the guy with the Gatling gun who like, and they, and those are all in opposition where there's actually some likable characters uh, in the middle of it all, instead of like what we've gone to great lengths to discuss tonight. Um, And I I think it's badass. Like it's also just like weird and like super gory, like way fucking more violent than any of the other movies we've talked about just because, you know, it was made in the two thousands and Takashi Miike is a fucking freak. So it's got all (laughs) of that too. Quentin Tarantino's in it with just like the most absurdly problematic yeah, can, yeah. Japanese accent <laughs> and crazy old age makeup. And mm-hmm. man, you got Dan, you haven't seen it, right? No, no, and I love me I very, so much. very, very much recommending that you watch Sukiyaki Western Django as soon as possible. Yeah, I'm mean, very well. My, my
0: my parents are here. Should I throw it on with them?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's not it's actually not it's that not, crazy. Um, it, it's oh, really not like not if, if your parents <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, if your parent, it's
2: it, it's actually, it, yeah, it's closer in, co- like, grotesque type of content to Django than it is to Ichi the Killer. Sure. <clears throat> gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Just good family fun, you know. Yeah, you yeah. got Got any other recommendations to make, Connor?
1: Yeah, so for my parents, since we're doing Mike, uh we discuss Women in Peril. I would like to submit Audition. Loved- <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But... Um, <laughs> I will I will say, uh, Mike's film, uh, this is not my parent, but just throwing this out there 13 Assassins. So if good. Like yeah. Westerns. You should Holy watch that. that movie fucking mm-hmm. rules. It's so cool. Yeah. It's got the same amount of mud as Django does, which mm-hmm. I think is important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my actual parent, we touched on this, but I think a, I legitimately think a fun movie to watch relative to this and kind of see where we have ended up um, is legitimately Drive. Yeah, because you get this character who is like from a character design, just extremely cool, and then you really start unpacking, and they're like, "Is he like aesthetically? I mean, he's Ryan Gosling, so like he's literally me, and he's very cool." And but, his jacket. Mm-hmm, the coolest. Ja- I own this jacket for the record. um <laughs> But the, but legitimately, you get to see very much the same. It's absolutely not a Yuen plot plotline, but you get um this sort of ronin drifter character who comes in is prone to intense violence doesn't say a lot is capable to a degree but like is by no means smart or thinking things through just is acting Mm -hmm. um and you see him come in and like what does he achieve he achieves nothing he gets his love interests man killed like he doesn't save anything he kills abber brooks like nothing good comes of his involvement in anything and ultimately he dies like it's very much a failed sort of you know ronin western neo-western kind of thing that is at the same time nothing like that from an aesthetic standpoint so to me that is very much one of the more interesting uh evolutions of what this becomes I think there's definitely other things that are more prevalent, but I think seeing the extreme opposite kind of aesthetically to go from this very muddy thing to this extremely clean LA neon drenched kind of thing is a really cool way of seeing how the genre can move uh, within different kind of confines. Like you're not limited to aesthetic sensibilities. It's just these stock parts that you're yeah, just how much you can in different places. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I th- I think it's neat to see how far that can spread and expand. Mm-hmm.
2: Nice. Well, Connor, it's great to have you shoot the shit with us, man. Will oh. you come back?
1: It would absolutely be my pleasure. I will next time bring something probably more well known. I was was like, like yeah,
0: try and find some other film movement that we know nothing about.
1: Like, I I don't know, you got
0: any, like, Hungarian
2: neorealism that you want to show us? uh, Sounds more like your thing, Dan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, my thing is, I'm a genre guy, so I'm always going to, like, the subversion within genre is always going to be my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but I like things that play within that. So anything obscure like that, I was extremely upset to see my brother had beat me to Strange Days.
2: Mm, yeah yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah, we, we, yeah we talk at length about how odd it is that that movie is so unknown
1: mm-hmm. it, it's that is one that i i'm interested to see uh to listen to the episode to see if y'all find out stuff in your research that i just don't know about because that the whole history of that seems wild but i don't really know much about um but yeah oh, i mean i would love
2: to enlighten you
1: yeah i Uh, think we
2: do touch on that quite a bit
1: i mean yeah i'm always happy to jump on for something whether or not i know anything about it
2: (laughs) well that just about does it for this week's episode of concessions thanks for listening i'm jared and i'm
0: dan and as famous italian aldo rain once said arrivederci
2: Black coffins for a hundred bad and a hundred black grapes so I can lay their ass in. I need a hundred black preachers with a black sermon to tell from a hundred black Bibles. Why we send them all to hell? I need a hundred black golf. Black golf. Black golf. I put that on my life, Lord, I wouldn't tell a lie.